0: Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the United States, Argentina, Italy, Germany, and a see you in hell that's a celebration of a death of a right-wing figure from also Italy. I'm going to start out in the United States and also Brazil. I want to note that this week is the anniversary of both the attempted coups of Donald Trump and former president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. Both of these attacks occurred basically at the beginning of the year, right in the United States. This was on January 6th. In Brazil, this was January 8th. Although it has been several years since this occurred in the United States, and everybody knows that former president Trump did just like attempt a coup. That's the clear consensus amongst legal experts who are not being paid by the former president. He is just running for president very openly saying like, hey, I do it again and I'm going to be more of a dictator this time and I want to end democracy in the United States. Meanwhile, in Brazil... Former President Jair Bolsonaro has already been barred from running for public office. That happened several months ago. He's barred from running for public office in Brazil for several years. He's also under serious criminal investigation for his involvement in the coup, in addition to his being under criminal investigation for a bunch of other stuff like money laundering and things. In the United States, we are tiptoeing around the former president's involvement in this coup, essentially allowing him to run for president you know, he might just, he he might just win. He might just be the president again. That's, uh, that's how the United States is dealing with it. Speaking of how Trump is dealing with running for president again, his lawyers have argued in a federal appeals court that the president, any president, presumably, but they were talking about Trump. They said that the president can order the killing of a political rival and be immune from prosecution, unless they are first stripped of that immunity by being impeached, and convicted. And it's very important for them because, of course, Donald Trump has been impeached twice, the only president who has been impeached more than once. No president has ever been convicted of their you know, thing that they were being impeached for, right? No president has ever been convicted and removed from office. Their claim is that a president has that immunity unless that conviction happens. And so since that's not going to happen in the United States Congress right now, based on how The power is currently arrayed in that body. It's just uh, it's just not going to happen. You know, the president is apparently, according to them, able to do literally anything and be completely immune from prosecution. As states are considering removing Donald Trump from their primary ballots, and as some already have, namely Colorado, GOP state leaders in GOP controlled states are talking about removing Biden in retaliation. One, for example, is talking about removing Biden from the ballot in Missouri. Uh, Considering that Donald Trump is being removed from the ballot, that is the primary ballot, not the general ballot in the state of Colorado, because he participated in an attempted coup. Uh, I I don't know what they think that Biden did that is constitutionally grounded to remove him from the ballot. There really isn't anything here. And lastly, in news about the United States' presidential situation, the New Hampshire primary is getting closer and closer. It is essentially now a race between Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, who presents herself as being something of a moderate, but like not, she's not a moderate. She's just a moderate Republican, which means that she is opposed to queer rights. She's opposed to abortion rights. She's opposed to trans rights. Uh, It's between her and Donald Trump. Haley is actually in pretty serious striking distance, though, and that could mean an upset for how the Republican primary works, or it could mean that Trump continues to barrel on through and just like wins later primaries, and New Hampshire is revealed to be essentially irrelevant when it comes to the primary system. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is essentially not facing any credible threats in the Democratic primary and is a shoe in for the Democratic nominee for the presidency of the United States. Moving on to Argentina, the newly elected Javier Millet continues to batter the Argentine economy and political system with his new right-wing political position. He's engaging in serious democratic backsliding by targeting journalists and especially feminist activists. Both the government and also right-wing operatives and sort of like just thugs are targeting people who were involved in the previous abortion legalization fight in Argentina. Argentina passed a seriously wonderful, like like an actually incredible abortion legalization law in 2020. It's among the best in the world, particularly because the law does not discriminate against people based on their gender. The law just says anybody who wants an abortion can get one, which is a big step up from a lot of how a lot of laws deal with gender in this. You know, they say only women, which would mean that a trans man who is capable of getting pregnant would potentially be barred from receiving an abortion. So it just says like anybody who can get pregnant can get an abortion, right? It's a really, really well done law. Of course, the Argentine right hates this. Millet, despite being a, you know, supposedly agnostic libertarian, is opposed to abortion, And says that he might want to have a referendum to potentially overturn this legislation. Meanwhile, in the Argentine economy, inflation is rising rapidly. And Millet, the president, says that, yeah, inflation is just going to get a lot worse. He's engaging in what many economists call shock treatment. That is, he thinks that the economy needs to be, you know, put in its place. And that presumably that means that workers need to be put in their place, as he would understand it. And that means that he thinks that the economy needs to have a terrible, terrible series of years. He is essentially planning to ruin the Argentine economy in order to build it back better, in his mind, from the ashes. He's also reached an agreement with the Argentine left's arch nemesis, the International Monetary Fund, essentially cementing, or at least intending to cement a series of anti-worker reforms and anti-state aid reforms that would prevent Argentine future governments from reversing his economic measures. And speaking of the Argentine government, an Argentine colonel or former colonel Carlos Luis Malato, who committed crimes against humanity during the Argentine Dirty War in the 1970s and 1980s, is currently on trial in Italy after having run away to that country in 2011. Malato is accused of eight murders when he is likely implicated in hundreds of killings in the Mendoza province when he, was, when he was stationed there. Unfortunately, this means that he might not face trial in Argentina itself. Argentina has tried to extradite him from Italy several times and has failed, although it's possible that his conviction in Italy means that he might get extradited to Argentina to face trial there. Moving on to Germany, far right groups in Germany have engaged in protests alongside others who oppose the government's subsidy cuts for agricultural products. Now, that sounds like an extremely boring sentence, especially in a podcast that's usually about, like, you know, crazy fascist shit that's happening around the world. But I assure you, this is an extremely worrying and terrifying thing. This means that the German extreme right, specifically a neo Nazi organization and party called the Third Way, which is a common way that fascists talk about themselves, A neo-Nazi party is engaging directly, openly, and acceptedly with a mainstream political movement, like a very normal political movement, bread and butter politics. These are farmers who are opposing subsidy cuts for agricultural products. Very boring stuff. But if you get farmers on your side, they're a very, very loyal constituency, and they have been for an extremely long time. In fact, the Nazi party itself back in the 1930s had a lot of farmers as its constituent party members, and there were many early voters for the Nazi party. There is a long history of collaboration between fascists and agricultural workers and agricultural parties that is longer than 15 minutes and, you know, is more of a sort of dissertation type topic than a podcast topic. Continuing on to Italy, a far-right rally in Rome involved hundreds of fascists, openly giving the fascist salute, which is not supposed to be allowed in Rome. The fascist salute was popularized there by the Italian fascist party over 100 years ago. This rally was intended to commemorate some post-fascist martyrs, students, who were killed while members of the Italian social movement, the post-fascist party that the current ruling party of Italy emerged from, earlier in the 20th century. And we're going to stick with Italy with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. However, instead of the mid-20th century or the present, we are talking about the fascist period in Italy. talking about a guy named Giacomo Acerbo, who is the author of the Acerbo Law, you know, of course, the law that handed the fascists power in Italy. Giacomo Serbo was born in 1888 to a noble family in central Italy. He did well in school. He went to a university in Pisa and there studied agriculture, which would remain his academic focus for the rest of his life. As a professor and as a young student, he advocated for Italy to conquer territory, which he considered to be Italian territory held by other European powers. This form of politics is called irredentism. And it's when a, you know, a political movement says like, well, that land is rightfully ours and we should take it by force. This was a very popular form of politics in Italy in the 19th century and was an on-ramp for a lot of people into fascism. When the Italian government did enter World War I, partly because of this irredentist push, he joined the war and ended up as a captain, so a fairly decorated soldier. After the war, he returned to the academy in economics and agribusiness, but he also joined the fascist paramilitary organization, run primarily by Italian veterans, that would eventually become the Italian Fascist Party. Acerbo did extremely well in the Italian Fascist Party, both locally and then nationally. He ran and won a seat in the Italian Lower House as a fascist in 1921. This is, again, a reminder that in addition to their paramilitary activity, the Italian fascist party was just a political party in Italy in the 1920s. They ran on elections, and they won a lot of them. Acerbo was an important go-between as a respectable candidate, and he enabled a lot of connections between the Italian fascist groups and other political leaders, namely agribusiness, farmers, and the monarchy, which was founded on the backs of peasants and farmers itself. So Acerbo is an important go-between in this particular story. Acerbo participated in the March on Rome in 1922, which was a march led by the Italian fascist party on Rome, the capital of Italy, in order to cement their victory in the election that year. His participation in the government eventually led him to be the man who wrote and got the namesake law of his own past, the Acerbo law. Now, the Acerbo law changed how Italian elections worked. It said that the party who received the plurality of votes, so the party that got the most votes, whether or not they got a majority, would be granted a supermajority of seats in parliament. They would be granted two-thirds of the votes. This was extremely important to the Italian fascist party because at, at the time, in the early 1920s, they had to rely on allies, they had to rely on allied parties, and had to contend with, like, the potential that their votes could be overturned, you know, like like if their allies turned against them on a particular measure, sided with the socialists or something like that, they might lose a vote in parliament. Like they were just a party, like any other. With the Acerbo Law, the Italian Fascist Party was positioned to remain in power forever. It was passed, and in the upcoming election, the last one that Fascist Italy ever held, the Italian Fascist Party won this plurality and thereby won two thirds of the seats in parliament. This cemented their power forever. Acerbo, as part of the coalition that achieved this victory, was positioned to be big in Italian politics. He became the agriculture minister and was also involved in academia on the side. However, he engaged in a rising feud with Mussolini as the dictator leaned closer and closer to Germany after the Nazi seizure of power about a decade later. Acerbo sided with a different faction in Italian fascism, which believed that fascism was best when it was Romantic or Mediterranean, not Nordic. Meanwhile, Mussolini and his allies were, you know, siding up with Nazi Germany, seeing the rising tide of power in Europe. Still, this didn't mean that Acerbo was out of power, it just meant that he was out of the higher echelons. He still participated in the Italian government. He was still part of the Council of Fascists, which was ostensibly the highest level of government in the Italian fascist state, but which didn't wield a whole bunch of power. It's somewhat complicated. When Italy did enter World War II, he participated in the war. He led some war efforts, including, for example, Italy's attempt to conquer parts of France as the Nazis were invading France from the north. When the Allied invasion happened in Italy and it became clear that the Italian fascist government was going to lose in this particular invasion, he sided with a different faction of fascists who wanted to remove Mussolini from power and get a separate peace with the Allies separate from the Nazis. This didn't work. He eventually fled to central Italy to avoid prosecution by the Nazi-led rump state, the Italian Social Republic, which was led by a Mussolini that they had sprung out of jail. Eventually, though, Acerbo was captured and sentenced to death by the Italian resistance slash the eventual post-war government of Italy. However, this was overturned, and he was released and his name was cleared in 1951. He went on to lead a normal academic life, again attempting to enter politics a few times as a monarchist, but he failed. He died of old age, this week in history, the 9th of January, 1969, right, and Giacomo Acero, we will see you in hell. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And I mean that sincerely. I'm getting more and more fascist attention. So if you leave reviews, that's a way to combat against their negative reviews here. Rather than checking out my Patreon, please check out Medicine Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders, the Gaza Children's Fund, or the Red Cross or the Red Crescent. If you want to get in touch with me to ask a question or to issue a correction or something like that, you can reach me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com, and that's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. I'm on Twitter at slash x at hist of the right, that's H I S T of the right, and fascism15. Again, that's spelled out. Thanks very much, and I'll talk to you next week.